Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm Sarah Condon, your host. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-host, RJ Heyman and David Zoll. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Okay, it is July the 26th, and we are back after a little break. I have been to the beach, and uh, now I'm home. And I know, Sarah, you've been away as well. How, how was, uh, I think you guys were in the Pacific Northwest? We were. We were kind of on a Handmaid's Tale tour. So we just, like, trot out <laughs> Canada to see what it was like and then came back down. Um, what did you find? <laughs> Canadians are so nice. Like, they are as nice as everyone says that they are. I mean, every experience we had was like really lovely. It was great. It was a really, really good trip. Rutger, everything well on your end? We're doing okay. We're, you know, I'm finally sort of settled back in after my blissful sabbatical time, which seems, mm-hmm. I don't know, like a long time ago <laughs> in a galaxy far, far away. But we're doing good. We're having a good summer. I'm car shopping for my 16-year-old, which mm. will absolutely come up more over the course of this podcast. So consider that a teaser. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Fantastic. I was, I was hoping we'd learned something about that process. More car talk. I know. We need more more car talk. <laughs> well, uh, since it's kind of a quiet time and the dog days of summer, I thought we would. it was safe enough to have an episode that was sort of law-focused completely. And by that, I mean that the first thing that we're going to look at is a report from McSweeney's, a uh, humorous uh, report, a medical report, woman hospitalized after a Attempting Effortless Lifestyle. This is by Patricia Lawler-Kennett. A 36-year-old woman was admitted to the emergency room this afternoon after several attempts at a quote-unquote effortless lifestyle. Symptoms include exhaustion, depletion of savings, paranoia, and inadequate space to store cosmetics. Uh, the history is the patient reports attempting effortless lifestyle after a friend of a friend claimed she was heading to Tuscany for two weeks with quote unquote four simple essentials, one of which included a sundress that converted to a tablecloth for quote last minute picnics. Uh, discussion of the disease, effortless lifestyle syndrome was first reported in the early 2000s and reached epidemic proportions a few years later with spikes in New York, Los Angeles, London, and affluent suburbs where there is more than one Michael's craft store within a 15-mile radius. <laughs> the disease is highly contagious. Prognosis is poor in this case since patient states she is planning on renovating her kitchen overnight using only a coconut shell, six empty bottles of Pellegrino, and a Shenzhen Nanki orchid she grew in her garden. The treatment uh, prescribed is a full-time job, <laughs> needy, <laughs> needy friends, and a dirty bathroom. Check, check, and check. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I feel like uh, we were just talking about one another here. According to my Instagram, or at least my wife's Instagram, we've had a very effortless two weeks at the beach. There's been no crying, no oh, tears, totally. no meltdowns in the middle of the night, no ice cream getting into every crevice of our car. No, nothing like that. It's just no been credit card debt. No credit card debt. Nothing like that. I mean, what, what, are you, what, what, what came to mind when you guys read this? Well, it's so sharply written. It's so well written that honestly, I was like, Stephanie Phillips could have written this because like this is the kind of commentary that she provides sometimes on this stuff. But I loved the uh, 
I shopped for all of the ingredients at the farmer's market on the way home from work, then showered, jumped into a paisley caftan, and entertained until 3 a.m. without ever going to the bathroom. It was all so easy. Um... This is so funny. I mean, this is right. The best things are funny and sad. It's so funny. It's also so sad because some of the stuff hit really close to home. I mean, the caftan, the entertain till 3am wasn't quite my vibe. But Dave, you read under the part called discussion of disease. So the best known vectors are websites that create biweekly content such as contour while you drive, which is a makeup thing. I don't know if you guys know that. Or this one hit close to home, breastfeeding and barbecuing. Um <laughs> It's, yeah, I mean, there is, I, I, like, I flashed into my brain to, like, our son's, oh my gosh, must have been his fourth birthday, and Annie was still breastfeeding and, like, six months old, and I was, and I remember, like, tr- like having on, like, a long, probably a caftan, right, like, a long dress, and, like, having her in, like, a, a thing that tied around me that looked really cool, but probably not something I used on a regular basis, but it looked really cool, and just feeling totally miserable on the inside and exhausted and overdone. And like, why am I trying to do a birthday party at the six month old, mm. but on the outside trying to look really pulled together for everyone that was at the party, you know? And then of course this is sort of relevant to later conversation, but you know, my husband's the priest it's the church school. So like I, you know, I, I need to look like really pulled together and Christian. And yeah, I mean, this was, it, this was great. Um, it was also like hit pretty close to home. Yeah, I thought immediately I've been on a major Mr. Rogers kick, you know, ever since I taught Mm -hmm. that class and we talked about it here. So I thought about him coming back after all those kids were putting on Superman outfits and jumping off of roofs. Like they were trying to live effortless lives, right? Like I'm Superman. I'm going to put this on. I'm going to jump off a roof and break my arm. And it's just like we don't we don't ever learn. Mm. You know, we we think we can we think we can do things that we can't do. And then it also hit close to home for me this week because to bring it back to cars, which I'm going to be doing a lot of. Um, I'm, you know, I'm car shopping for Jackson and I'm trying to find him something like, I have a very specific idea of what I want and I think what he wants. And he's such a good kid and he never asks for anything, but it's really, really stressing me out. You know, I'm trying to find like the perfect huh. example of this car. I'm doing like compulsive nat- nationwide Craigslist and uh, auto trader and cards.com searches. And, and part of it does flow for my need to live this kind of like perfect effortless life, even though it's kind of a vintage car, it's probably going to be a nightmare. You know, I'm getting myself in way over my head and I probably should just give up and not do it. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that too. Like I want to give him this perfect gift, but it's not going to be perfect. And it's really stressing me out. And, and, uh, I don't know, bring up all my insecurities about being a good father and stuff like that. So we, we all have our own, yeah, you know, because I, mean, I like cars and anyway. I mean, well, when we talk about the injunction to, you know, be more, do more, be better, you know, achieve, it's, it really is. It's not just that you need to have it all or do it all, but you need to do it effortlessly. That's sort of the, that's like the dagger in the stomach of the, after the machete of the law comes down. It's like you, you not only have to accomplish these things, at least in order, and everyone's trying to kind of give the impression that they're doing it, but then you have to give the impression that you're not doing it without even trying to do it. And uh, it's this 
really vicious cycle of, I think, um, self-consciousness, in fact, masquerading as its opposite, that, yeah, it, it, provi- it makes for really, really good satire, I think. But it also, you're right, it's, it's sad, especially around vacation time when the whole country seems to be oh, on gosh. the highways going to the beaches. Yeah. If, you, if you were coming back anywhere, I mean, and, you know, not, I obviously not everyone can go away or wants to go away, but those highways and just seeing the amount of people <laughs> surviving their vacation and no, God only knows what sort of impression they're trying to give off though. You know, it's like that, uh, I always think of that REM video that everybody hurts when it, the, the cars are stopped on the highway and you kind of go into each car and people are, everyone's hurting in some different way. And yet they're probably on their way back from the beach and they've got a, they've got a tan and, and they're in California and it's beautiful. And yet uh, what's really going on inside is not effortless at all. In fact, the injunction is is sort of making is is outlawing kind of safety and the ability to kind of actually deal with what you're doing. Maybe that's too dark. Dave, that's so true. I mean, my, my wife and I we we literally get into a fight every time we're leaving for a vacation. Yes. You know, every time we have to pack the yes. car up, every time the house has to be clean, every time have the boys packed, you know, what have we done? And and it's I'll be honest, it's mostly my fault because I get really stressed out. And part of that stress is why is it so hard to sort of get to a place where things can be easier? You know, everything just mm-hmm. seems to be difficult and this frustration and this and something in me that tells me that life should be easier than mm-hmm. it is, which uh, which is not often the case. You know, and, and when, when life doesn't add up to the way you're, you feel like it should be or you're told it should be or mm. anyway. Well, all, I guess all we need is a full-time job, needy friends, and a dirty bathroom. The needy friends I already have. I mean, I'm looking at two of them right now. Hey. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah. No, I, you know, it's funny. I often feel like God is so present when we're on vacation, like, and not because I drag everyone to churches, but like at these odd moments, I feel like God just like shows up. And I think part of it is because we're so miserable, like, because like vacation is this like, well, I mean, our kids are still, you know, we have a seven year old and a four year old and it's, we're just now not doing cause we do these for too long in our family bottles or sippy cups. We're still doing diapers. Um, and like, it's you, you're just sort of out on a, well, it reminds me actually of Charlotte and Stephanie's book. You're sort of out on a boat, like, right. Like floating around when you're on vacation on and you've all got to deal with each other. And, fast and yeah, you're like desperate. And so there's these like odd moments where I feel like God shows up and you know, I have put, I put, we had this really terrifying experience when we were in Van- in Vancouver Um, Our daughter has this stuffed animal called Lion that she's had since she was an infant. And she actually has to have him to sleep because she tucks his tail onto her thumb and sucks. And that's how she sleeps at night. So he's always with her. And she had my hand and she dropped Lion like as we're coming around a corner in Vancouver. She And she drops my hand and she runs out into the street. Crouched is a four-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. Just as a car is like coming around the curve. And they stop. They slam on their brakes. And I'm screaming and Josh is turning, you know, and we're grabbing Annie and, um, I actually took a picture of the lion and put up the story on Instagram. I, I, what I didn't put, there's always like the deeper level is like, you know, that it like really ruined the day. It was really hard to have that moment where you're like, Oh my gosh, like God and all his mercy in this moment, right? Our kid is okay. And also like we could have lost our kid. Um, 
So, mm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's the kind of stuff. It's weird now that we're in this world where vacations get shared so much. And I certainly share our vacations more than I should. But um, there's, you know, it's it's what it's like 8% of what's actually happening. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it, this kind of idea that we're under the injunction to perform even on our vacation or even I, I guess that effortlessness needs to be evinced in all things, especially if you're a person who is a Christian or trying to become some sort of a moral example to people. I was thinking about this, the kind of ratcheting up of the law as it relates to something that Troy Elliott wrote for our website this week. Mm. The way it reminded me of the effortlessness thing is that J.D. Koku, you guys know, he was saying, I find that the people who are the most adamant about teaching free will sanctification are the least sanctified people I've ever met. Meaning the people that are the most effortless on Instagram, if you were to be around them, they were the, they're the ones evincing the most effort and probably resenting the hell out of anyone who gets in their way and makes it look like it's not uh, the case. But Troy, he wrote this wonderful thing called Warning. Warnings are useless. And he's trying to talk about the wisdom inherent in God's law. He says he recognizes it, not just the parts that I'm occasionally fleetingly accidentally good at. And I'm equally aware, acutely aware that I'm not supposed to be wearing cargo shorts and listening to electric light orchestra in a non-ironic way. I disagree. Um, I violate God's law and I feel convicted. I violate the little L laws of society and I feel enlightened. But what I fear may be the truth of the matter, that whether I'm living temporarily self-righteously or whether I'm congratulating myself on throwing off the yoke of direct TV, all I'm really doing is whatever I was going to do anyway. It's just me doing me, adrift on my own ocean of self. No amount of admonishment seems to have any effect. And then he finishes, he says, last week at church, I started thinking about the origins of our confession of sin, the one we pray every week, all year. How did this get in there, I wondered. I'm no theologian or historian, but I have to think that at some point, someone must have said, you know what, let's go ahead and put this confession thing in here because we'll never have to worry about it not being applicable. They were that sure about human nature, and thank God. I cling to that confession because at the end of the day, at the end of every day, despite the admonishments, the warnings, the exhortations about the severe and dire consequences of our shortcomings, we do what we do. That's why grace is truly amazing. We listen to advice, we read the word, we pontificate and point out where others fall short, and yet we pretty much do whatever we want to do and hope that most of it falls within the bounds of pretty okay or something we can live with or at least something we can rationalize later. And yet... And yet we are loved, not only loved, but embraced, taken in, marked as God's own. Now, I know that's sort of a left turn slightly from the effortlessness of Instagram, but I found it to be, I don't know, deeply comforting in the way that it acknowledged most of the ways in which I'm actually feeling like I'm fulfilling the law are just the ways in which my own natural proclivities coincide briefly with what God has asked of me or the society has deemed uh, approvable. Where did you guys land on that? Oh, it reminded me of what David Foster Wallace wrote. What did he say? You know, sooner or later at the end of the day, you end up becoming yourself. Mm. Was that the quote? You would probably know no, exactly what the it, quote yeah. is, Dave, but something along those lines. And yeah, it's true. It's like when you have kids or really before you have kids, you think to yourself, oh, I'm going to mold them and shape them and, you know, make the, they're going to be incredible. And, and I mean, they are incredible, but I'm, I'm going to have more control over who they end up being. And then you have kids and you realize you, you know, you get what you get and you don't get upset because kids <laughs> end up being who they are when they come out and you don't seem to have actually that much, uh, control over that and 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 this idea that people actually aren't that 
mutable, that I'm probably going to be dealing with the same uh, questions, anxieties, sins, you know, 30 years from now, if I'm still alive as I am today. You know, I remember remember Aaron Zimmerman saying about this, this about a small group he was a part of at a, a church formerly with a bunch of older men. And he sort of thought to himself, well, you know, older men, they, they get older and their their passions wane. And, and he's like, no, that's just not at all the case. It was a bunch of like 18-year-olds in 75-year-old bodies. You know, they're just the same as they, as they ever mm. were, uh, even though they're older. Mm. So that's what I thought. People are who they are. I thought this is one of the best things we've had on the website recently, to be honest with you. I thought it's such an accessible way of looking at this, um, this kind of freedom that we have when we realize that, that we are who we are, right. That it, that, um, that we don't, we can't really impact the, the change of who we are. And, um, I think we forget like how radical this message is. Um, I'm in a couple of groups, secret groups on social media, where people they're sort of one of them particularly sort of a haven for people to talk about grace. And, um, you know, and there was a woman who got on recently and she just said, I, I keep, I keep hearing my pastor say that they're the kind of people that bear fruit and they're the kind of people that don't. And, and I identify more with sin and, you know, this makes me feel so awful. And I mean, that's why we have to hear this stuff over and over again, because you can't, you know, it's almost impossible to take it for granted. I mean, I found this piece as comforting as the first kind of stuff that I read on Mockingbird's website. Um, and it made so much sense It it reminded me a lot, actually, I've been rereading, um, Chad Bird's book, um, your God, your God is too glorious. And he has this amazing way of writing about how we think we have control over our lives and how, you know, there's such good news and that we don't, and that, you know, what we would have planned and what we would have expected. I mean, he talks about like, you know, having a, you know, a teenage daughter and her getting pregnant or, you know, this kind of stuff that happens in everyone's lives and how, you know, how God uses these things, even if they're really hard for us. Um, and I, I have to live in that camp because it's so tempting to live in the Instagram camp. It's so tempting to think if I just get the right, you know, essential oil or like headband for my baby or like all the random things I bought, you know, if I just do those things, then, then I will, then I will be effortless Then everything, you know, and, and, and I, that camp kills me so quickly. Actually, you know, the worst thing is like, if you have your phone out, right. And you're going to take a picture and it's accidentally set on, on, uh, the reverse mode where it's trying and you're like, Oh my God, like, that's what I look like. You know, like that's, that's actually right. Like that's actually sin. That's actually like, we're so unchangeable. You know, that's what it is. Like mm. it's the weird red spot on my nose a, that won't go away. Gonna, if you're going to be a pastor or a priest or like anyone who wants to actually love anyone else, you can't help. You've got to have this perspective because if you have the perspective that people are changeable and they can control themselves and they can get better, you're just going to end up hating them All and the resenting yeah. them and yeah. not actually being able to love them and, and accept them as they are. And it, it uh, you know, I mean, what does Paul write? You know, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, you know, and, and his, his grace uh, was, has not been without its effect on me. So yeah, Paul has to come to a place where he accepts who he is and, and, and what he's done and accepts the grace of God. And that's a tough thing to do. And certainly not something our culture tells us to do. Like, by all means, never accept who you are. Um, always be better. You need to be better. But I just don't see any other way to live anything approaching a, a peaceful, loving mm. life. 
Yeah. I mean, you don't have to be a pastor, just be married. You know, it's like, if it's, uh, yeah, I love, right. you, I love you when you change, or I love you if you change, or I right, love yeah. you if you stop doing right, X, yeah. Y, and Z. It may, you know, it's like, it was that, that great, this is 40. Remember when Paul Rudd tries to stop eating the cupcakes and she starts to stop smoking and they, they make this pact to be better for the sake of their marriage and the sake of their kids. And they end up like, he ends up out at the trash can, like picking out the cupcake and smashing his face. And she's smoking all the time behind his back. And they finally just be like, well, they kind of come together in the moments of failure. And that's when their love is reborn. Mm -hmm. And we know this, mm -hmm. but love really is something we fail into, I think, um, rather mm. than. Um, that's a good line. Dave, love is something that's we not fall into. Guys, we fail into? Excuse oh, me? I, say that. So I think the spirit is among us. I'm working words. on my book, and I was actually just finished the, the Seculosity of Romance chapter, and I used that line. So people out there, do not steal it. It's, it's under copyright. So viral. <laughs> Hashtag fail into love. I'm calling it trademarked well, right now. Well, speaking of failure. I shall make millions. <laughs> speaking of failure, R.J. Heyman. You wrote a yes, uh, yes. devastating, uh, I think, incredibly <laughs> honest but beautiful um, post this week uh, for the website, and um, I think it was—it just cut me to the core. But also, not just because I love you, and not because I was just there, but it really spoke to me in a much larger way, just as a person living in the world. Your starting point was this wonderful podcast startup, which is uh, Gimlet Media as, as, a, as a sort of a large podcasting company. And this American Life actually highlighted part of it. And they're doing the, every season they profile a different company, an entrepreneur that's getting going. In the first season, they profile themselves actually. And this season, they decided to profile a church plant because one of the, I think one of the producers is a Christian. He kind of, he jokes about coming out as a Christian to his boss and they decide to do this. And basically they profile a church plant in inner city Philadelphia where the guy who originally starts it completely burns out and he's replaced by a, a it's sort of predominantly African-American. And he's replaced by this guy named AJ, who's a white guy with dreads, I think, married to a black lady. And so there's there's that element going on. There's a socioeconomic, uh, racial element. But really what's, what's happening is there's this amazing Christian. It's all the only way to know how to say it. Like he's, he's, he's anxious, he's open, he's vulnerable, he's clearly trying to do the right thing. And you kind of just love this guy and you walk with him as he tries to, you know, get, get their, get their space ready and put the band together and get a sign up and everything. There's always, always one step forward, two steps back, but clearly RJ, I don't really want to talk about it that much more. I want to talk more about what it brought up for you. Can you just, I, I can read back to you the post, but I'd rather you just uh, riff off of startup. Well, I hope it wasn't. I hope the post wasn't too devastating. I I felt that way. I mean, clearly, it's you know, it's been it's been six years, but there's not too many people that you can talk to about uh, sort of being a church planter, having a failed church plant. I mean, as I say in the article, um, the startup podcast itself came out right after I moved to Houston, the kind of the plant had failed. And there was so much in the podcast, just as guy starting a business and the anxiety that went along with that, the questioning that I really related to. And Alex Bloomberg, the founder of Gimlet Media, has, was so profoundly open and his wife was on there and they talked about it and um, money issues, anxiety. We talked to his therapist. It was um, That in itself was kind of cathartic and, and healing. But of course, this has it sort of hit me in a totally new way. And in some ways, I don't want to say PTSD exactly, but uh, I can just relate so much to what AJ was saying and all these 
hopes and dreams that you have. I think especially what he says about um, wanting to plant a church for people who aren't Christians, and then you actually start a church, and the only people that show up are a bunch of, are a bunch of Christians. Uh, that was something I, I also learned, the financial struggles, the, the questions over, you know, did I hear clearly um, this call that I thought God made really clear, but things don't seem to be working out the way I thought they would. Um, you know, I, I make a hint, hint on it, but, you know, Dave, you were you were there with me founding Mockingbird at the same time, and we were kind of partners in crime, and it was it was really fun before you and Kate um, moved down to Charlottesville to sort of continue uh, the ministry down there. But, I mean, I used to have dreams. Like, I had a quote-unquote prophetic dream where you and me and uh, Kate and Jamie, my wife, were all hanging out looking at this uh, little plant, like this potted plant that all of a sudden started to grow spontaneously and basically turn into sort of Jack and the Beanstalk, right? It's like, go, go, grow, grow, grow. And I was like, there you go. That was a prophetic dream. Like God is going to bless this thing. It's going to be amazing. It's going to go like gangbusters. Um, And there were parts of it that were amazing and went like gangbusters. But at the end of the day, we just couldn't pay the bills, uh, and and we, we we couldn't make it work, and I had two small kids, and man, that last year of just the insecurity of not knowing how are we going to pay the rent, you know, how are we going to, um, how am I going to feed my family? So it, it brought up a lot of stuff for me, and I was talking with um, a fellow priest, uh, Sarah, you and I have at St. Martin's, Jonathan Adams, who planted a mm-hmm. successful church plant in Atlanta, which is still going, and I've been talking to him about it this week. I said, how did you reach financial self-sustainability? He said, well, we had two families show up early on, and, and they just started giving like um, you know five figures a month. Like, you know, and I was like, well, that helps. And we never had that in New York City. And I said, well, what did you do? What was your strategy? Like, how did you how do you develop your donors? How did you build relationships? And he said, I didn't. They just showed up and started giving and, and we were able to pay the bills. And I think there was some relief in that, too, of feeling like um, at the end of the day, it really is all up to God. And as I said in my post, uh, if I could talk to AJ and his wife, you know, I have no idea how their plan's going to turn out. I would just comfort them that there is, you know, if it's successful, fantastic. And I actually had someone sent me an email who said he planted a church that was quote unquote successful, but, uh, and did that for 18 years and it left him totally burned out after 18 years. Uh, so maybe it'll be successful and that's wonderful, but even if it, it's not, and you have to move on to something else, like God will be there on the other side. God is there on the other side and he knows the plans he has for you. And it's, it's not to, um, break you down or, or, or crush you as much as it may feel like it. Uh, but that God is merciful and faithful at the end of the day. And we certainly discovered that to be the case because we ended up in, in, a, in an amazing church in an amazing city that we, we never thought we'd be here, uh, but it was so clearly God's uh, God's gift to us. And and I look back on that experience. I think even that was an incredible gift because I was able to experience God's faithfulness in a way I never had before. And um, I guess I think the last thing I'll say. Um, there have been a number of priests in my life, pastors who I really, really respected, and almost without fail, each one of them had at least one major ministry failure slash catastrophe. And so I think there was always part of me that knew that in order to become the kind of, I don't know, preacher, pastor, person that I wanted to be, I was going to have to experience some failure, and I didn't really want that to happen. Um but it did happen, and it'll probably happen again. But I do think, you know, this whole theology of the cross thing we believe is true. Um, God works through mm-hmm. failure. 
you know, God, God shows up and, and refines in the midst of difficulty. And I, I think that experience was um, hugely important, even as it was hard and in some ways continues to be continues to be hard. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm abreacting all over the place <laughs> with this, as, as is my wife, as is my wife, uh, as we listen to AJ and Leah uh, kind of right in the thick of it. And it's been, it's been fun and um, powerful. Um, yeah, this, it was, so Josh and I've listened to this on vacation together. And, um, I think the thing that, that the first thing that really hit me was sort of how, and, uh, AJ talks about this, RJ, you talked about this, how we define success Mm. and how we define success in the broader world. And then how success is defined in a church and there is something, and I have not experienced this, um, you know, we've never been a part of a church plant, but there's something really sad to me about the fact that a group of people can gather in this way and can worship and it can be 40 people, which is right where they were before Easter. And then I think they had a few more after Easter or whatever, but 40 people and that that's not enough, right? Like that's mm. not financially, that's not enough, but mm-hmm. spiritually Maybe it is. And that that is so complicated and, you know, also plays into this struggle that AJ talks about that Leah talks about where it's like, you know, who, who am I trying to be for the sake of this church and who am I, you know, truly in Jesus um, and how those can feel very different. And that I found incredibly relatable church plant or not, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, things can feel really personality driven and you're like, okay, but who, you know, what is, what, what is that worth? That's not worth anything. That's not anything happening. Right. If people aren't recognizing God in their midst. Um, and the other thing I wanted to say about it is I just think it's such a a crucial listen for any, um, you know, it's, we're mostly wives. I would, you know, what if you, maybe there's some husbands married to priests or pastors, but, um, women specifically. And I, I want to say, I think it is a women specific. It is a wife specific thing in ministry to go through what Leah goes through so openly. And I'm so grateful for her honesty Mm -hmm. where she talks about her identity being wrapped in this church and, and how she needed a win and how like other things in her life hadn't gone well. And she needed this to go well. And, you know, like it or not, right. We're still, in a place where uh, for a lot of us, for even for myself and I have job and all this, but I still, my identity is very bound up in my husband's success. And, um, that is, a uh, it's a scary thing in any way because it, it, I think brings things into marriage that are, um, vastly unhelpful, (laughs) but it's really, I think a really awful and hard thing if you're talking about a church, you know, and I mean, RJ, I would imagine you and Jamie had Sundays. We've had Sundays in our church that's not a church plant where there weren't a ton of people there, right? Mm, And you get home and you're like, oh, there weren't a ton of people there. And it like colors your Sunday. It can color your Monday if it's your day off, you know? Like, um, here's what, you know, here's what went wrong. Here's how we can, what's the football term people use? Monday morning quarterback. Monday morning quarterback. Yeah. Like, you know, it's just more sports. We're trying to do more sports, but I appreciate it. No, I love it when you write RJ, um, 
about AJ that he struggles openly with anxiety, which is sort of a big part of actually what makes his ministry appealing and connect with people. And in fact, mm-hmm. one of the people they interview who comes, she's, she, she says like the way he was talking about anxiety really spoke to me, or it was one of the guys maybe, but that was the key to uh, his actual connection. And yet he has received, this is you writing RJ, he's received the message that to be truly successful, he needs to be the type of highly confident, unabashedly self-promotional, completely self-assured, almost superhuman leader that so many famous church planters seem to be. And then later on, um, he says, you know, he questions how much faith in God he actually has and how he would act differently if he had more. For an entrepreneur, there's no ambiguity. It is all on you, even if it's not, that's not actually true. But for a church planter, there is this uncomfortable mix of purported trust in the divine and then gospel phobic bootstrapping. Um, I mean, I, there, there's so much to that. I think that is, um, it's amplified when you're trying to do a startup of any kind. I mean, I've experienced this with Mockingbird, of course, and with the ministry we do here in Charlottesville, but it's amplified, but as you can't outrun it, no matter what you do, you're going to over-identify with, um, your ventures, with your projects, with your accomplishments. And uh, it's sometimes, it really does feel like God is, uh, who meets you when those things don't go as planned. And sometimes they go, they don't go as planned in a better way. Sometimes they don't go as planned in a, in a, in the, not in the way that you'd hoped, as you say, RJ. And like, you know, it's funny. I, I look back on that time when we were doing that church plant and like, those are all my closest friends. You know, I, I, I see how many people mm. kind of got married out of that. And I, I see, um, the, the gifts, the the, 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 you know, a little bit of the ego that did need to die and the, in order to be able to mm-hmm. not be in the bright lights in the big city and to actually be of use to other people. And, you know, maybe that sounds mm. like a silver lining, but I, as I told you when we talked about it, like, I don't think it's, it's not a false silver lining. It's uh, the way that God actually worked and that he was calling you there. I think, um, uh, or it, it's that Monday morning quarterbacking thing. I don't know what the whole plan was, but I do see enormous amount of fruit in my own life. And, um, but yeah, I think the lessons are much larger. I think, uh, this is, uh, this, this, uh, tension between being an entrepreneur and being a Christian is just a tension between being in the world and being a Christian, I think, or being, believing in Jesus and, uh, and a living God and the way of the cross and trying to, uh, breathe air in the performanceistic um, world in which we're all ensconced, whether that be the social justice form of that, whether that be the legalistic pious side of that, whether that be the materialistic keeping up with the Jones side of that. It's it runs so counter to the cross. Well, and Dave, to say more about that biblically, because I do think about this, the question of does God sometimes call us into a place of death? You know, does, is that, does that actually happen? And I think about, you know, I think about Israel wandering in the desert, you know, have you, have you brought us out of Egypt into the desert only to kill us? Um, yeah, actually, that's exactly, exactly what I've done. Like, that's why you're going to wander for 40 years because mm-hmm. I'm going to kill off this first generation. And then the next generation will enter the promised land. Of course, they're no better. And I think about, um, how Christians hear what Jesus says, you know, no one can be my disciple unless they take up their cross and follow me. And the way we interpret that has something to do with like 
self-sacrifice or, or being willing to something like that. And, and that's part of it, but also this recognition that part of the Christian life, part of any life is being put to death by God, that having the part of yourself that thinks you're in control, that the part of you that wants to be God, you know, the part of you in the Garden of Eden that says, yes, I want to be God. I will eat that fruit. I can do better. I want to be in control. I want my way. And life is just one. It's God saying over and over and over again, no, I am God. It's not good for you to be God. It's better for you to just be a person and to trust me. Uh, and so I do think that God calls us into uh, into death sometimes, probably all the time. And that New York, you know, that church plan was a, just a, a huge experience of that for me. Not the only one by any means, but an experience of that, of, of him, of a death that there might be a resurrection, you know, of a death of my ego that I might move into something more mm-hmm. like faith-based freedom rather than self, self-based slavery and anxiety. So... You know, it's interesting to work with RJ because um, I had known RJ through Mockingbird for a long time and was like, I'm super pumped. Still am. Love the guy. You know, you should meet your heroes. Um, Never meet your heroes. But work with him now. <laughs> but we were at like, so gosh, I've been at St. Martin's. It'll be four years. And we were at clergy meeting, which is like obviously just clergy. One of my first ones. And I'm super pumped. I haven't done anything in parish ministry. I've only done hospital chaplaincy. And um the altar service had started recently, which is this kind of alternative service that they have at St. Martin's and RJ had headed up sort of the starting of it. And I was like, out loud, I said, and I still feel dumb for this. I said to RJ in front of all my colleagues that you must, that must be so great. I mean, you must be so good at that because it would be like planting a church and RJ turned fully to face me and he goes, this is not like planting a church. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay. Um, but I felt like in that moment, there was like a whole ocean of things that RJ and Jamie have been through. Um, and I'm really grateful that you have started writing some about it because I think, you know, yes, we look on the other side of that and yes, by a lot of measures, it was a failure, but I totally agree with Dave. I mean, I, this is like such a personal thing, but there was a text that Dave's wife sent to, to RJ and to me and Jamie may have been on there, but it was to tell us about this podcast and to know that like I get to like be included in the specialness of what happened in six six years ago in New York is like it's a gift, you know. I mean it's it's amazing what you guys did. And it may have not worked out, but you learned a lot and I get to learn a lot through what you talk about. So anyway, I'm just glad you're writing about it. Oh, I mean, so. uh, I, I encourage you to continue. Sweet. It reminds me of that amazing quote from W. H. Auden from the Age of Anxiety, where he says we would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. And um, truth mm. is, sometimes we're wow. uh, put on that cross. I think we, we all are. And, you know, it strikes me as, you know, a lot of people, the way that I hear a lot of faith talked about, uh, you know, if something like that had happened to them in the way that it's happened to you, RJ, they would sort of, they'd go through a period of deconstruction and they'd be like, oh, you know, I don't know if God is there, what's going on. And, and um, I think that everyone, I, I don't want to speak for you, but that is such a superficial um, understanding or, I mean, it's, it's under, it, it's, I'm sympathetic to it. I've been there myself, but it is ultimately uh, this stuff about God working through suffering, through death and resurrection. It's not just like a rationalization. It's how it actually 
happens and you can't engineer it. No one ever it chooses is. death. No one ever. It's, it's awful. It's, the, it's worst, the worst thing in the but world, but it is actually. How you're it here to testify that there's life on the other side of the, that death. I mean, I, it's what I can see. And um, I mean, I, I, I pray. I, I know those wounds will always be there, but you know what? Where, where? Without your wound, where would your uh, ministry be? Right? What is that? The I do think I think it was I think it was a, a gift. I think it was a profound uh, it was a profound gift, and and uh, and I'm I'm not quite the place where I can look back and be like, thank you, Jesus, for this amazing gift. No, 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 no. We but uh, maybe no, maybe, no, no, no. maybe someday. What does Colbert say? The what no, what we, uh, we... what afflictions of God are not gifts or something like that? After. Oh, I know, Stephen Colbert. It's, God bless yeah, him. Yeah, it's I, I, we, we did not do a church plan, but we definitely had our own really tough church. And um, thanks to the internet, that won't be hard for people to find. It's not where we are now. And um, like right after we left it, I would try to spiritualize it to Josh and be like, "But don't you think that Jesus and God and like this is going to make us so much?" And Josh is like, "No, that was really hard." <laughs> You know, I mean, just, I think, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it, I think it, I think it takes a lot of time to be able to have that perspective on this stuff. But Pretty much what I did to you in clergy meeting. Right. You know? yeah, yeah. I'm the one that's always like, but wasn't it great for you? And people no. Are like, no. No. Um, yeah. But it reminds me of, gosh, I can't, re- I've been thinking about this so much lately. I don't know if I talked about it the last time we recorded, but I did a big study on Ruth. Did I talk about the last time we recorded? And there's that part in Ruth. You and I were talking about it. Where we, where Naomi, right? She's like, what really happened on the threshing floor? Yeah, right. We were not talking about that. Um, we know it was sex. Um, but Naomi was like, she, she, she like looks up and she's like, who, like, just call me Mara. Like I'm bitter. Like, I don't know what God is doing. And it feels like such a, and Dave, I know what you're saying. There are people out there that they, they just think God is, has abandoned them. And I felt that way and you felt that way, but it, it is, it feels like sort of a modern thing and it does feel superficial. I love that in scripture, people are less like God, like where, you know, like God doesn't exist. Right. And they're more like, what is God doing right now? Which I think is like the faithful yeah. response. So anyway, it's like Robert Duvall and the apostle, you know, and he's just yelling at God in, uh, in the attic and someone calls over to complain. It was his mom's house. And he's like, well, since his little boy, he's been talking to God and some as he talks to God and some as he yells at God and tonight he's yelling at God. And, uh, but I, I love that because he, it's not like God's not there. It's just mm. kind of got to have it out mm. with him. Well, let's, right. I think that's probably the right place to end. I want to say to the two of you that um, I just saw the initial layout of the Deja Vu issue of The Mockingbird, which is the new print issue is coming out in probably about two weeks, two and a half weeks. And Sarah, I think you've got something wow. in there. I know that I do. RJ, I think we shut you out of that mm-hmm. one intentionally. Um, just kidding. But it's fantastic. Good. It's it's a little bit of a greatest hits issue, but all, everything's been redone and it's unbelievably beautiful. I also want to announce that the registration for our Oklahoma City Conference, where Carrie Willard will be speaking and uh, Stephen Paulson and J.D. Koch, Gert Benham will be there, Kelsey Kambara will be there, I'll be there. Um, it's going to be fantastic and it's very cheap. It's 30 bucks a person. It's October 12th and 13th in Oklahoma City and that information will be on our website. So check it out and we'll be back with you in a couple weeks. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. 
Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group, and if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time.